okay hello everyone so it's amara so um sorry for neglecting my podcast for, for like three months okay um i know it was bad of me i should have uploaded more consistently i just got really caught up with like work school and like with summer stuff like a bunch of things come up and stuff but now i'm like okay no i need to be more consistent in my uploads i have to upload but yeah but so speaking on that i was like okay so obviously i need to do my first not comeback but like my first back podcast from my hiatus for a while so i was like okay let me just do it with my boss and yeah and it's gonna be just like a q a session between me and him uh stuff that i wanna it's gonna be more of stuff like i just wanna i'm curious about so yeah and then you guys can kind of learn a little bit uh more about like what i do and what the company is and things like that so um just to kind of like give you guys like a brief kind of introduction so my boss his name is deepak dutt so he's the uh founder and ceo of zigra so he's like everyone's boss obviously so yeah so basically what zigra is is a cybersecurity firm and what we do without getting too much into the technical details of things it's like what we do is we kind of we determine who is the real end user using ai algorithms and machine learning deep learning things like that so that's zigra and so deepak he's like a very much like a serial entrepreneur like he started his first company when he was in university and yeah so in that company was an ed tech company so and the, i think the way he described it to me is that they were focused on they were kind of like adobe flash before adobe flash was created so yeah so he's he had that company and then he worked in the telecom industry and then he worked at Nortel, which is, which is a, like a, obviously a huge cybersecurity company, and that's been like his background and things. So he has like an extensive background into security, uh, programming, all that stuff, right? And then yeah, and then he started Zigra around I think 2009 with his sister Deepti. Very surprising, I know brother siblings, a brother sister relationship is starting a company together, but he started it with Deepti. In, they started in 2009 and it started off um, mainly in like universities. So where Zigra was um initially done what 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 like the core activities was for Zigra when initially started was like a lot of research because um to determine a user's basically okay maybe uh, maybe i have to get into the details of things but so what Zigra does is that we determine a user's unique pattern or behavior right and this is done through behavioral biometrics so behavioral biometrics is like anything from like the pressure the way that you swipe on your phone the pressure on the phone like are you holding it are you are you tilting it things like that so anything that makes you uniquely you and the way you interact with your phone or you like your laptop or anything like that that's basically what Zigra was made to do is to answer that question can we determine you based on how you interact with your devices and things like that so yeah so to obviously to kind of understand people and how uh, they work and like to create those AI engines it's um you Zigra started off in uh, universities basically like the I'm messing this up, but basically Zigra started off in universities, so collaborations with universities in trying to determine and getting all this data done and data science side of things of like, okay, who is the real end user, how can we detect them, blah blah blah, things like that. And then in more recent years, that's um, they decided to, um, the more recent years, it's become more full-fledged of a company as in terms of like selling to consumers directly, you know, going after businesses, things like that. So yeah, so that's a little bit about Zigra. Um, and yeah, so Deepak runs Zigra. I don't think I'm, I, I don't think I'm forgetting anything else. Mm, 
so guys thank you for watching i know i've been away but uh, thank you for being so nice to me and i'm still watching even though i've been away for a long time and i cleaned up my background a little so it doesn't look as messy so i'm very proud of that but yeah other than then yeah that's it and uh obviously so um one thing i forget so he's in ottawa i'm in toronto so this is gonna be done through like a scoop a scoop a skype zoom type of meeting uh meeting app yeah it's gonna be done through there so yeah so it's all gonna be virtual so if there's any kind of noise or anything or like the video's bad quality it's obviously i'm not recording on a camera it's, it's recording through our laptops um webcam so just be mindful of that Okay, thank you guys. Uh, now I'll switch over to the actual movie. I mean, a movie to the actual video call. Okay, thanks guys. Bye. And I'll try being more consistent in my uploads. So hello, welcome. So my podcast is called Growing Pains. So, so I already did a brief introduction where I filmed this separately, introducing you. Okay, but briefly, if you want to get like say a few words of like who you are, what you do. And then we can get into like the whole conversation side of things. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so, so happy to be here, Amara. I'm, I'm Deepak Dutt. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Zigra. And I run uh, everything uh, uh, fun at Zigra. Fun at Zigra. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So I already explained. I was like, okay, so Deepak, you started off as uh, running your, oh no, you created your first company at Insix. Am I Intix? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's in six. Okay, yeah. So it was in the um, edtech space, right? So we were creating uh, e-learning simulation software for course creators to uh, create engaging courses at the at the certification level, right? Novell, Cisco certification, those kind of things. Um, and, and yeah, that was my first uh, startup. Okay, yeah, and then after that, you worked in like telecoms, you said, and then you worked at Nortel, and then you started Zigbar, right? Okay. That's right. So, do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to yeah, start yeah. off briefly explaining what Zigra does? But like, ex my viewers are very much non-technical, so don't go into so much technical side of things. What's like, what is Zigra, and what do we do? Right. So, Zigra, the name comes from the Sanskrit word uh, word called shigra, which means speed and velocity and acceleration and things like that. Right. So, we're all about speed and. and we kind of started playing in the cybersecurity space where speed was of utmost importance. An attack happens, how do you quickly solve those? And how do you always keep in front of the attackers and uh, prevent attacks from happening? Right? So, so when we started off Zigra, the, the main tenant was all kinds of authentications were very frictionful. It was very uh, complicated. Then people had to do a lot of things to protect themselves. So you're getting already too technical. We said, you need to like start like base level. I know. Yeah, I think you. I think you've been in it so much that you don't realize that people don't even know what authentication is. You know. Ah yes, yes, yes. So, so how do you protect people in the digital world? Yeah. Right. I, I think that is the question. What we were trying to answer when people were in the offline world, they could go into shops. People could have face to face interaction. So so it was very easy to say, okay, who was behind using a specific credit card? or a specific transaction, very easy, right? Because you could see them, you could touch them, you could feel them, it was easy. But when you come into the digital world, um, how do you really know who you're interacting with? Yeah. Are you interacting with Deepak on the other side? Are you interacting with Amara? 
They say they are, they are Deepak and they are Mara, but I have no idea who I'm interacting with, right? So that was the problem. And there was a lot of um, fraud happening because people, you know, were hiding behind the internet walls and uh, saying they were somebody else. And um, they were conducting a lot of theft. They were, you know, stealing bank accounts. They were stealing credit card information and using them in different places. So the digital world had very little trust in it because it was very hard to see who was on the other side of the transaction. And that's where we got our genesis. And we said, you know, how do we solve that problem? How do we solve the problem of trust to know who is the other person on the other side and always make sure that you're always interacting with the right person? And we started putting together a lot of technologies that was very complicated for people. So you say, oh, I have to do these five steps and then I can make sure I'm dealing with the right person. And people are saying, no, I I don't want to do all that kind of stuff. I don't understand these things. All I want to do is click a few buttons and it's all done. And we said, okay, so for that kind of technology to happen, we needed to bring trust into the internet. And we said, how do you bring a form of continuous trust? Because it's like saying, you know, once... Once you have got inside the house, once you got the key to the house, you can get inside the house and you can go to every room mm-hmm. in the house. But how do you know this person has, should be given access to every single room in that house? Yeah. They may not have access to go into certain rooms, right? So that is where this process of continuously making sure that the person who you trust is the person uh, who they say they are and they can be trusted throughout uh, their journey with you. Right? It's not like somebody, oh, I'm starting a transaction, um, but in the middle of that, Amara comes in and just takes that section away, section away. And now the person who was dealing with Deepak is no longer dealing with Deepak, is dealing with Amara. But they have no way of saying they're dealing with Amara because, um, because something happened behind the scenes that Amara was able to kind of hijack that session. Right? So... We started solving that specific problem to say, how do you know at any point of time you are dealing with a trusted person and that trust goes all the way from all the way from the first interaction to the end of the interaction continuously. And we said, how do you do it in a way that is totally frictionless? That the user doesn't have to do these 10 different things. We said, ah, okay. So let us create a signature for the user based on their unique habits. Right? So the way they sit, stand, walk, interact with their applications, interact with their devices. So we create a unique signature for every user based on their un- unique habits and interaction patterns. And we say, okay. And if somebody else now takes that over, we say, oh, okay, now there's some attack that has happened. Okay. And, and, and this form of technology is called anomaly detection. Yes. Right? So this is the user. And if I look at their signature and I look at somebody else's signature, I can find the difference, right? So it is that kind of technology that we have used behind the scenes. So, okay, so what, like, because obviously, like, you were working at Nortel for a long while, right? And, like, your telecom industry. So, like, what's, like, the spark that made you want to go into authentication? Because it's such a niche field, right? Yeah. uh, See, even in those days, I was traveling a lot. And what really got me started was um, 
I was traveling. I was in Boston. It was a long, start, a long time ago. Uh, I was traveling. I was in Boston. I was on. I, I wanted to buy something for my wife, so I was on the um, at the airport checkout counter, bar trying to buy mm-hmm. something, and the line was going slow, right? And when I get to the front of the line, I'm trying to make my payment. I'm trying to run, and what happened is they started blocking my card. So your know, card's blocked. You can't use it. And now I'm embarrassed. I'm standing in front of the line. I'm embarrassed. Else? My card's not your working. Card's declining. Right. This is. So I just drop it. I dropped yeah. it, and I, I left. So because I, I didn't want to be standing there, you know, hogging the line and then trying to figure out what yeah. happened, right? So, so I, I, I left, and so then I look look at what happened, right? So, um, so the, the merchant lost lost a sale. Yeah. Right. I was not really happy. Right. And I said that, uh, that's that sucks. So I dialed up the bank and asked them, you know, what's going on? And uh, they said my account's been flagged for fraud. Right, um, and um, because of some kind of rule they had put in place, the rule got triggered, and uh, and that rule was saying, okay, if you your your location changes from one location to the other, uh, or something along those lines, they would block the transaction. Okay. Right, and and the bank just lost thirty dollars speaking with me on the phone, so, and looked at everything and said, everybody's losing out here. The merchant lost. I, I'm not. I'm not happy, and the bank just lost uh, another transaction as well as the thirty dollars yeah. uh, in, in these kind of costs. And when I dug into it, those kind of costs, it, those were those were like false positives, and that that was costing the bank, um, uh, uh, you know, nine and ten calls in the bank's for call centers were all similar kind of fraud. It was not real fraud. It was just their rules engines actually. Triggering the yeah. step up. Exactly. Exactly. And, and they were losing $100 million every year because of these kind of issues. Right? So we said, that's a, that's a big problem. Right? And that, that kind of sparked it. And then it started happening quite a bit because I was used to traveling quite a bit. And these were early days. And, and that was quite problematic for me. Um, and then I started talking to people. And that seemed to be a problem for a lot of people who traveled. So trying to really figure out what was happening in these banks, figured out. They use rules-based systems. Mm-hmm. Say if it is a uh, you know less than so much ten dollars in uh, you know transaction cost, let the transaction go through. If you're buying something at five hundred dollars, do all those checks: check one, check two, check three, check four, right? And so it was a very um, you know, rules-based system, and the the the, the and it was done across the organization. So let's say for example, um, you don't travel a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas, let's say I travel a lot. They were using the same rules for both of us, and my, and these rules were causing me a lot of pain, costing the bank a lot of pain. It was costing the the, the merchants also a lot of pain. And I said, okay, how do we solve this problem? So that's kind of where I, you know initially we got into the entire fraud detection space around payments. That's how Zigra started off and saying, okay, um, fraud is an issue. Um, more than that, false positives are issues. Uh, and that's causing a lot of problems. So how do we solve that call center call problems? And I started with that. And we said, okay, that for that is where we started putting together the unique IP behind Zigra that said, okay, um, we should be able to kind of figure this out very easily by creating personalized signatures for every single user. 
it should not be standardized rules across but the organization. So, so when you first started out, right, like I'm assuming then you didn't have no experience in data science or were you like actively in that type of field? So we were, I was in the telephony spe- uh, space on the, on the telecom side of things. Um, the more the data science and machine learning side of things were coming in because we were trying to solve a problem that required a lot of automation early on. Wait, in, because so if you think about telecoms it, or in, or are you talking about like the fraud payment side of things? No. So, so in telecoms, in my background, there was a lot of data analysis we were doing. See, the problem we were solving in the telecom space was, um, uh, was around actually remote support for our customers. What was happening was um, the support teams were getting really uh, bogged down by a lot of tele- telecom issues, or telephony mm-hmm. issues, right? All these networking. See, what Nortel wasn't the, the business of selling these network switches. So, you know, how these switches com- connect phone calls and data networks together, right? So when you make a phone call, the phone call goes into the network switch. It connects between all these different switches and then it comes to the other side, right? So Nortel wasn't the business of selling these switches, right? And we were in a team that was writing um, analytics software for analyzing what was happening on the switches on a daily basis. Okay. So our scripts would go in there. We would do all the data collection on the switch, what was happening. We bring all that back in. We do um, analysis on that and then create visual analytics and see, oh, okay, these are the problems that are happening. These ports are getting really used too much, but these other ports are all free. Here, the CPU utilization was very high. So we were getting a lot of intelligence into the switches and what was happening um, you know, um, to, to cause these problems. Mm-hmm. And how do we find these problems and solve these problems before it became a problem, right? So that is where a lot of our analytic um, background was coming in. And then I moved into a team that was doing a lot of uh, legal interception of large communication networks. That means um, that if there was an issue, Right, um, some kind of problematic calls that were happening in the three-letter word agencies would come talk to us. And I say, okay, we need to hook into the switch and we need to gather intelligence on this. Okay. Right? Again, there's a lot of intel collection. Is that and like what we were seeing tapping? inside those where it's not wiretapping. See, every time everybody anybody puts a switch in there, legally you're supposed to put a a, a piece of code in there that does intelligence tapping. So. For you to do that, you need to have a court order. Oh, okay. So they, they just can't come and say, oh, okay, I need to do this. They need to go convince the judge. They have to bring in that and say, oh, okay, now you can do it. And then it was handed off to the team to actually do that and then provide the information. So that provides a lot of intelligence into these kind of transactions. And that's where I got the idea for saying, oh, I can use that for fraud and stopping this kind of fraud issues because that level of intelligence was what the banks needed for, um, you know, on a transactional level, not at the switch level, but at a transactional level to make sure that this is the real user, right? So that is where the kind of the idea kind of spawned from a data analytic perspective and from a uh, from a data science perspective. So then, so then how did you know that, like, when, when you first started Zigra afterwards, right, how did you know you wanted to make the full transition from, like, working at Nortel to Zigra? Like, what was the indicator for that? I mean, Ziggur is my, uh, essentially my third startup, right? And I had done a few startups before. As you mentioned, Insix was my startup that I did 
when I was in third year university, right? Yeah. I started that. We grew to around 25 users, uh, 25 employees. Um, and we quickly sold within the first 18 months, we were bought up, was bought up by an Ottawa company and I came to Ottawa. And then uh, um, I spent some time at uh, Newbridge and some of the telecom companies. And then I started another company in between. Um, that was kind of another quick uh, startup for me was in the, um, was in the e-learning space uh-huh. where we had tutors in India that was teaching students here in North America. And we were using a lot of um, tools that are very common today. Today you have, you know, video sharing, you have uh, whiteboards, you have two-way voice, uh, voice over IP and such. I mean, we did it back in mid 2000 to around 2005. Um, those kind of technologies were not commonplace. You know, Skype was just coming out, it was very early days. So we put together technology to enable that. And then very quickly we grew the number of students and the number mm-hmm. of teachers. And um, and that was within a year. So actually I went back to India, spent a year there, set this all up. And then um, that company was sold, right? Within, that was within the first 11 months. It was very mm-hmm. quick, um, come, you know? So so I, I, I'm in the habit of being a serial entrepreneur as, as life kind of goes on, right? And enterprises where we come back and kind of, um, live a different life for a short while because, you know, entrepreneurship takes its toll and then you want to kind of refresh. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. And, and then I said, okay, I was in a corporate for a while. Then I spent quite a bit of time at Nortel. And then I said, this is now time to go back because, um, you know, I, I enjoy going back and it's, I enjoy playing the game. Entrepreneurship is a game. So, um, so either you build a company, you kind of build that and you grow it up into a large company, or you constantly keep starting new companies, selling companies and moving on. Right? Um, so with my previous companies, I had achieved very, something very different. And with Zigra, I have a very different form of, uh, you know, I want to take it to the next yeah. level, right? So, um, and, and this is one of the reasons why we kind of you know, build Zigra in a very different manner, right? instead of putting together and leveraging technology it became uh, a part of putting together the foundational technologies to enable this to happen. Okay. Right. So, so do you ever have like regrets for selling off your previous two companies or are you like, okay, it was done and over with, got it done and then move on to my next chapter? No. Yeah. I mean, see, every company has its purpose, right? And, uh, um, you know, every company started with a different purpose. So these were all started in different phases of my life, right? When I was, I was still in, in school, I started my first yeah. one. And then when I found, when I found a good partner and then when I found a good exit, um, we discussed with the team and the team decided was, 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 was a great exit to have within 18 months. Um, and technology again, moves very fast, right? So it wasn't like we had a ton of IP, we had very cool technology. But then, you know, we had to either scale that tremendously or um, or, or, or exit, right? And, and those times in India, it was entrepreneurship was very, very new. Yeah. I, I, India was very, a place where there are you know, this large entrenched companies, right? That, you know, so, so for you to kind of survive as a startup, startups were kind of still very unheard of in, in India as, as we very, you know, very well know it today here or even in India for that matter. In the last 20 years, you know, startups have been kind of maturing and they're going IPO. So it's it's a very different stage for startups in India as well. But when we were doing it, um, that seemed to be like the best, um, you know, uh, exit to take. 
So I, I think we discussed with the team. Everybody agreed. Um, I, I think everybody had a great exit as well, right? For for those times, I think it was it was very good for people. Susan, so. Susan, I have a question. So you know when you're starting these companies, right? Why is it typically like so? Typically, you don't assume that you would get into partnerships with family, right? But like you always tend to. So I know you. Um, I know you said that at in Intex you worked with Deepti as well. You co-founded Intex, it, yeah. and then with Zigra too, you co-founded with Deepti, your sister, right? So like, what's like? How do you know you're mature enough to start a business with your sibling? It, it's just what's available, right? I think it comes back to where, where our parents were. And we have the same kind of interest. We have the same kind of interest in technology and business. Um, so we kind of inculcated that from our parents. And then um, we, we just got along quite well, right? And this is happening earlier and earlier. Like, as you probably know, uh, in, in Spur, for example, some of these earlier, you know, um, kids and our kids are now getting together and starting their own companies much, much ahead uh, earlier, yeah. right? They're like 12 years, 13 years, right? So this is now possible in a much earlier age. From our perspective, again, I think um, it's just the dynamics with which we start, yeah. right? So, so one of us has an idea and say, I'm going to do this. The other person get excited. Uh, let's, let's do it together, right? I think it's just people just getting together very quickly and saying, okay, let's, let's, you know, let's make this happen, right? So I think it's more than getting into business together is just supporting each other, right? And it just, and just happens that, oh, okay, suddenly we are co-founders. Suddenly we start doing yeah. stuff together. Right? So it's not preordained as this is what we want. It's just you selling your vision. And for me, I'm, I'm happy to share that with my with mm -hmm. my family. Right. And whoever wants to join in just jumps in and joins it. So I think, yeah, it was very serendipitous because, uh, you know, if DP was there in my first one, second one, he kind of followed me through. We were at Nortel mm -hmm. for a while. So I think we kind of worked together in different places, both at startups as well as corporate. Um, we had we had similar career trajectories, if you may, right? So it was easy uh, for us to convince the other to get something started together, because then you have one person, you have two people, you have, then you get momentum going on, right? So yeah, I think that's how. Yeah, we were just comfortable because we had prior history of yeah. working together, right? So I know we things just. Um, I know we mentioned there. this like last week or something about how like there's more and more like siblings starting companies and stuff. But then when I look at it from my point of view and like my siblings, I'm like, I don't think that's, unless this is like a franchise, I don't think it's possible <laughs> at all. You know, I feel like you do need a certain level of, okay, understanding of this is my realm of what I think and this is your realm of what you think. Can we work together? Right. But I, I don't know. I think it's very, very hard, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of dynamic that comes into play, right? And it's a lot of maturity, but doing business is extremely hard. Yeah. And then finding trustworthy partners is even yeah. harder, right? So that's why a lot of family business, as soon as the um, monet monetary compensations or, 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 or the financings change, there's a lot of, you know, uh, infights yeah. suddenly, yeah. right? But I think we've kind of, you know, kind of strayed away from that because we were quite um, excited about the technology and we had kind of similar visions. And if it, it was a matter of saying, Okay, I, I don't believe in the you know in the future of this because I want to do something more mm -hmm. exciting. Then it's a matter of saying, okay, how do you make that happen, right? Rather than saying, oh no, you can't leave my business, you're going to leave me alone. It's just like, okay, it's come to a path where it's now views are diverging, and you be mature about it. And how do you 
then become a part of the new journey as yeah. well. Because again, it's all coming back to serial entrepreneurship and it's always about giving it forward, right? So how do you help? Um, and I think that's, that becomes part of any kind of business relationship is how do you kind of help forward and help um, make the other person's dream a success yeah, as well? Mutual. Right? It's not... It's, yeah, mutual it, value for you. Exactly, exactly. Because exactly. How do you make them a hero? And if that means... They, they have to go on a different journey. How do you enable them to kind of do that? Yeah. So, so then for, okay, so, if, yeah. so you said that like you're seeing your parents and stuff, that's like what kind of gave you a little bit of guidance when you're younger, but like, do you feel like there's like specific kind of values you, your parents instilled in you? And that's why you're, you be, both of you became entrepreneurs, like part of your upbringing or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, that was a lot of conversation around that, right? There was a lot of, um, lot we could imbibe from uh, our parents, right? So, uh, the, I mean, for us, getting into the business uh, world was kind of thing. I think we need to do it at some yeah. point, either it's now or later, right? And the advice from our parents were also along those lines of saying, never get used to a paycheck. Because the moment you do, then it's very hard to get out. So that was the only advice they That's gave us. That's very atypical right? so, advice. I'm not atypical. That's very non-typical advice from Indian parents. Like, you know... It's not, it's not not the norm, especially like around, like from where I grew up, that's not the norm. Like parents are like stability, you know, gotta be like something with a secure paycheck, things like that. So then were your, were your parents like entrepreneurs themselves or? My dad was an entrepreneur, Hmm. right? He had run his software businesses before. So he had, uh, uh, you know, a fair bit of success and uh, we kind of grew up um, seeing that. Right. So we kind of grew up seeing that and, and, and a lot of conversations early on in, in our family were around these entrepreneurs and how they were making it happen. And, um, so those kind of thoughts were inculcated very early on. Right. So we knew um, starting off, we always had this inkling of starting our own business right? Uh, and, and charting our own journey. Um, and, and yeah, so, so we were all really guided. Right. They were said, okay, you need to have a base education and then you need to be able to do what you need to do, but um, never get used to that paycheck. Uh, I think that was the biggest advice that was given to us. And um, yeah, and then it was more like saying, uh, chart your own course, right? Um, I I think India was slowly kind of opening up from an economy perspective Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Yeah, Um, so I I, I think, yeah, I, I think that those were kind of things that we had guidance early on so we were not really stuck to saying i need to do this i need to do that i don't need to be having this job um or the yeah, only expectation our parents have was saying you need to have a base degree <laughs> the good engineering degree because you're both engineeringly inclined yeah. but after that it's totally up to you right because because that's their job to get, to get that, to done. that level and then they set right? you free like as birds yeah. Exactly, exactly. So then exactly. what do you so you know you exactly. see like in like Silicon Valley, like there's so many like Indians now like uh, in executive positions. What do you think is in India's water that causes so many people to become CEOs or into the tech space? Like even in America or in Canada. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean see, what I see with Indian people in general is uh, is very analytically very strong, but a lot of uh, very strong work ethic. I think that work ethic is what's really making them successful, uh, be it in CEO roles or be it in entrepreneurship or whatever mm-hmm. that is, right? Um, and I think that's that's been a big driver. 
Uh, Silicon Valley, again, is it's a different ecosystem per se, right? Because one of the things I really find fascinating there is, again, a lot of Indian entrepreneurs who have been successful, but they didn't stop there. They, they, again, go back. Again, they find this as a game. They go back, and then they want to kind of give back to their community. So let's say, and one of the things I find is when they go and start a new company, they have a lot of um, other Indian people go and work for them mm -hmm. as well, right? And then from there, they see the success of, of the founders and then say, okay, we want to go start our own, right? So they, they are kind of, you know, putting together on this entire ecosystem where it's just, it, it just want, it's just an overall feeding frenzy, yeah. right? And when that happens, that entire community gets internetwork very closely. So the investors get more internet work very closely, the founders get, and then the people working for the founders get. So um, it's a continuous cycle that starts giving yeah. back. So yeah, it's a very different place, but it's one of those places where Indian entrepreneurs have kind of proved themselves um, and they're considered smart. There's no barrier you have to cross across. Yeah, you, when they see Indian founders going through, they say, you must be far yeah. smart, right? You must have a smart team, right? So you, you've already kind of broken those barriers, yeah. right? So I think, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think in terms of like giving back, like I totally, like I totally agree with the whole Indian or like I guess Asian mentality, more like of giving back to your community. But obviously for, my, for me, for my community, like I have family back home, but my community is, where I grew up, the people I surround myself with. And then that's like, that, that's like long-term thinking. It's like, how can you um, give back to your community in a way that's helpful to them, but also in the way that's you're best suited for you. Cause I feel like a lot of times people think the way that you give back only is you give money, you donate, like a, you donate and stuff. And it's not necessarily the best way right. for, or like best um, outlet for you to give back to the community. Right. But definitely. Yeah. I see that a lot with the, even in, within my community and stuff, just finding the outlet for right. how to give back to them. But. Yeah, and I, and that's very important, right? And, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs, and not only within Indian entrepreneurs, we went through this program called Techstars. Again, the mantra there is give first, yeah. right? That's their mantra, it's give first. So how do you give first? So yeah, and, and then, then things just come back. So the, the key thing we hear again is, yeah. yeah. So, so the key is, you know, if you give more money, if you give money, you get money. If you give time, you yeah. get more time. Right. So, <laughs> right. So, so the, I, I think that's where that cycle comes in. Right. And, and, and different ages, you have different things. So when I, and I think we've kind of, you know, touched upon this before, or at some point is saying when you're between the age of, you know, 50 and 60, you're, it's time for you now to give yeah. back to the younger generation and let, you know, basically help them come up. Um, and provide them the kind of the structure. So the, I think the, the initially when most the, the first group of Indians came, they had to probably struggle through and they kind of worked the ecosystem, really made a name for themselves, like like the likes of Vinod Kosa, for example, right? Kosa? Um, very early days, start Vinod oh, Kosa. Vinod Kosa, yeah. Vinod Kosa was, yeah. So he's founder of uh, Sun Microsystems. Oh, yeah, right? Sun. So Sun probably was his second or third startup. Um, but then again, he found the right kind of people around and then he made that happen. Then he started giving back to the community to, uh, start the next generation of entrepreneurs, yeah. right. And, and that pushes the next generation of entrepreneurs. So I think it's, it's a constant cycle that people have to, you know, people do that in, in especially in a place like Silicon Valley, right. Where there's enough of a, um, good grouping 
of uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so, so for you, like if you were to like analyze yourself, right, what do you think was like the one skill that lets you get, get yourself all the way here? Or like your one personality trait that you think that really pushed you yeah, yeah. to here? For me, it's primarily been the perseverance, right? I don't like to give up early and I don't like to give up, uh, you know, in general, yeah. right? So, um, so, so you know, I have this tendency of kind of, even when the going gets tough, I, I just get tougher, right? If when things turn around, you know, turn, turn uh, really bad, that's when I really come out and shine, right? If things are normal, everything's great. And is, then this is boring. No need for me, right? <laughs> Right? Yeah, it's important. Well, there's no need for somebody uh, to step up, so I don't step up. Right? But when when the going gets tough and it's it, it's it's extremely hard to step up, that's when I step up. That's when I like to step up because then I think, okay, there's a need for something somebody like me to step up. Right? Uh, otherwise, there's enough and more people who could who could run things in a very comfortable yeah. manner. Right? That's not my cup of tea. So it's, I think it's a perseverance to kind of get there and stick it out. Till, till you make it happen. So, yeah, I think I would, I would, I would count see, that as uh, number one. See, I feel like I hear that from like all like successful entrepreneurs or even like people in CEO positions that the one thing that they always say is that you just don't give up trying and then eventually you'll get somewhere where you feel right. satisfied at least somewhat. But I think it's very interesting what the levels of trying is for people, right? Like some people have like a very base level of trying, like, okay, this is my end all be all and then they, they don't believe that they could push further right i think what i see in common is like right. in successful people is that they have their base level and they're like okay no now it's time to kick it up one more notch and right. like go to the next level of of like just effort and like putting in the work you know yeah i think it's about keeping the game interesting yeah. and fun right because if the thing if the you know as you said the goal is here and you got that goal and then there's no other purpose left for the company yeah, or for yeah. you. Unless that goals kind of move to the next level, then okay, so now it gets more exciting now. That's right. right. Because if that's all that, exactly, because that's stationary, then, then you're yeah. done, right? So that's when people give up and say, okay, I've hit that, nothing more to be done, let's do the next game, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's just going back and doing next and next. And each time, if you kind of push yourself to the next level, then it gets more exciting. Yeah. Right, and I think it's for a lot of uh, a lot of people too. They need that excitement so that when they hit that age, uh, let's say of fifty, for example, they can look back and say, "Yeah, my life was fun. Yeah. It was interesting. It had a lot of interesting things. Right? It was a fulfilling life. Right? It was not mundane. It was fun." Yeah, so you, I, I think it's a game that people. And like, if you so. like the problem that you're solving, right? Like that's why I try to like I try to because my family is very much like. Um, typical kind of Indian mindset where they're like, oh, you like, you know, you kind of have like your set doctor jobs, like you're a job that you know what you're going to do and right. you're going to have a career in it. It's going to be a lifelong, like, you know, you don't need to worry about job security per se. Right. And so then when they see me work like weekends and like work evenings, they're like, like, what's wrong with you? Like, are you gone crazy and stuff? And I'm like, but if you're like the right. problem that you're solving and if you know that things are going right. to be delayed, like you, if you have the sense of responsibility right. that, hey, things are not going to get done if I don't get it done, it's like you're just naturally inclined to want to work, right? Like you're just like, okay, yeah, I need to go. I need to go answer exactly. my emails or I need to go do something, exactly. right? But like people just look at you crazy afterwards. It's, it's like, it's, okay, well, why are you like working? Like, you know, you need to relax. But I'm like, it's fun in a sense, you know? Like it is fun. Exactly. But 
It's not. I don't know how to. You don't. Exactly. I don't know how to like no, relate it to thing, people. Right? No, I, I think fun means different things for different yeah. people, right? And and different stages of their life as well, right? Because if you have, um, you know, if you if you can't keep it fun, then there's no point in doing things that are not exciting or that doesn't kind of uh, move the needle for you personally. Because everybody has different levels of growth and different expectations from themselves, right? So some people, their expectations there, but they're saying, you know. I'm only performing here because I don't want to go there. Some people are happy yeah, here, yeah. right? So for you to be happy, you want to be here, yeah. right? And that's why you're pushing yourself. So that gives you a lot of contentment um, by doing that, right? It's it's not you, you're grinding it for the sake of grinding it, but you're, you're doing that because it kind of um, gives you kind of a, a dopamine rush, right? Or some kind of a, a you know a chemical rush. They're saying, oh, that's a reward I got for mm-hmm. myself. Because I, I feel satisfied, I feel fulfilled, right? And that definition is very different for different people, yeah. right? And at different ages. When you have family, you have different commitments, right? When your kids start asking you that question, that's yeah. problematic, right? And you're like, oh, <laughs> so no, my kids are like, yeah, so that's, they've been neglected. I need to go back. Exactly. Yeah. And that, again, as I said, right, if that is eating into you, that's problematic, right? So you need to make sure that you're carving out time for uh, everybody's, but you're also feeling satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, and that's going to be very different for yeah. different people. So when others tell you that's, you know, that's their reality, right? They say, no, I, I can't really do it too much. I don't, I don't understand why you have to push it to that level because yeah. I'm satisfied yeah, here. Yeah. I don't know. I don't understand why you have to be here. Right? Yeah. It's also, so, yeah. What also what I found too is that like it's so for me like the way i see zigra right it's like it's like what we talked about before it's like are things going to be consequential is there going to be impact right and then i like i for right. sure see zigra becoming a one billion dollar company like i see the unicorn vision right but for other people if they can't see that vision they think you're crazy because they're like you're working so hard for something that like you know might not end up being like what you think it's gonna be but i'm like but the vision is there and I believe in it so much that it's going right. to, that for me, it is consequential, right? Like it is important to do. It is something that needs to be done. But yeah, that's just one right. thing I realized. I'm like, oh, people can't see the vision that you see. So there's really no point wasting right. time per se. You just go and move forward with your life, you know? But exactly. And it comes to entrepreneurial vision and foresight, right? Because when you are seeing that big kind of a unicorn kind of vision, you're trying to put yourself in that, in those shoes, yeah. right? You're trying to go fast forward, let's say five years or a few years and say, you're saying, how is it going to be there, right? What is it going to feel like? What is it going to be, uh, what is it, how exciting is that going to be, right? And then you work your way back. So you get a lot of clarity. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm able to see the end vision. And because of that, I'm able to kind of work my way back. And now I'm able to connect the dots. Yeah. A lot of things might happen between now yeah. and then, but I'm able to see where it's yeah. going to go, right? And if you can't see that, then it becomes very, very hard. Then you're pushing yourself saying, I don't really understand um, how this is going mm-hmm. to be big, right? That's because you can't vision it. Yeah. You can't go into the future and see it. So you got to put yourself... You got to take the elevator to, to yeah. the future and see yourself in the future and then come back. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, so for you, like, okay, so if you, if Ziggur were to be, oh, no, 
not even if, when Ziggur is becomes a unicorn, right? What's the first thing you buy? Right. Buy? Oh. Like Bitcoin? <laughs> oh, it's just Bitcoin? Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, um, maybe buy a company, you know, that I'm really excited yeah. about, right? That, that becomes the next, uh, next game changer. Right. Um, so those kind of things, I think, again, being consequential is now you get the, um, you, you get the, the freedom to do other consequential yeah. stuff or support others who are building consequential stuff that you can't because you can't do everything. Right. So you, you did what you could. And now you're saying, okay, how do I seed others so that I can make them, um, hit those consequential goals. Yeah. Right. I think that that'll be a key part of one of the things I want to do, uh, as we get there. So, 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 you know, with tech, like the tech industry, right? like there's always like this common thing about like how in tech, there's a bunch of big egos, right? That go around and like everyone has like, cause everyone thinks that they're the best and stuff like that. Right. Like, so how, how have you navigated those situations where people have like, but because you obviously you need to maintain relationships and stuff, things like that. Right. But with people with big egos, like, do you yeah. feel like you can work with them? Like, how has it been like for you, like your experience with tech? I mean, see, one of, one of the things I find with tech CEOs, they're very uh, down to earth, right? I've not really kind of, you know, uh, kind of encountered, you know, a, a lot of these CEOs that are kind of got big egos. I mean, obviously there are a bunch, right? There are quite a few, but they're not being in my circle. And uh, I mean, it's, it's one of these, uh, one of my investors previously told me, right? And again, when he had a big ego, he was, he was, it's probably worth a couple of billion dollars, right? And, um, so he went to a meeting in, in, in Silicon Valley, right? And he was invited. So again, big ego events goes in there and he's in a room full of billionaires, yeah. right? And then suddenly his ego goes away. <laughs> he's like, I'm not, I'm nobody yeah. in here, yeah, right? <laughs> you got people with 10 times my value. My, if you were keeping money as the yardstick yeah. and that's growing your ego, right? Then you're, you're in a room that puts you back on the mm -hmm. ground, right? So I think for him was a constant reminder, right? Stuff like that exists. Yeah. And there's no point in me kind of punching my chest and saying, I, I, you know, I'm a billionaire. And, and because of that, uh, I, I can have yeah. a big ego, right? So I, I think your expectations are tethered and you, you come back to come back to earth, right? So, yeah, I, I think, yeah, because money is, is a game and it just keeps going. People keep going on, okay, got the rich side. I think, so that's not what I have seen. I, I've seen from an ego perspective, uh, very down to earth because yeah, you know, I, I think they've met people with equal or more, uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, valuations and, and being, seeing them grounded makes them yeah. grounded. So you would see somebody with a $30 million valuation, having a much higher ego with somebody than 30 billion. Right. So it, I don't think money has, it's just a very personal thing, yeah. I guess. So then, so for when it comes to like ego and stuff like that, right? Like obviously there's the other side of the coin, which is self-confidence, right? So where do you see like the distinction between ego and like self-confidence and like, how do you keep them like separated? See self-confidence you need to have, even when the going gets tough, you got to 
project the self-confidence yeah. as you know uh to to you know yourself <laughs> and everybody who's along with you so that they're on this journey um and they don't feel disheartened ego is very different so ego what you say is equal to god only right that's very different <laughs> if you think you're equal to god only that's that that's a different kind of thinking it's it's nothing to do with self-confidence right so i think finding yourself grounded and knowing what that means what self-confidence means what ego means will kind of put you make you really grounded so i think yeah i mean uh you need to project that self-confidence but i think that those are very different things that are two different meanings completely some people just um mistake one yeah. for the other but um yeah i i think there are very you know different underlying causes yeah, i feel there. like in the new generation especially i that's the one thing that i see is like this mismatch between self confidence and ego and because and then if you infringe on them and then you go like oh you know what like that's not really um the best way to go about things they'll be like well you're infringing on my self confidence but it's like no like self confidence is self right like nothing outwardly can affect your self confidence right and for for me like the way i take it is that like self confidence for me is just i have belief in my own self but that doesn't mean nobody else can have belief in mm-hmm. themselves right like i believe everyone's just equal and then you can get exactly. to the same point as me but i'm just going to get to the point that i want to go to you know exactly yeah you you have your own goals i think everybody is very personal everybody has their own goals and ego comes into play when you are into big negotiations and all that kind yeah. of stuff right so you need to kind of sidestep all that and keep the eye on the price because if you need to work on somebody's ego to close the deal then that's what it takes right? really i think good. um but some you know i, I think people do, yeah it, it, it's very interesting ego comes into play where uh there's a lot of low self confidence yeah. that's mm-hmm. the way i kind of think about this right because they don't have they're trying to project it and, and and then trying to kind of come up with a positive outcome there but uh, that's the only way i would kind of correlate those yeah so then, okay so like you mentioned like big decisions right like so when you have like kind of like a big decision in mind like okay this is something that i need to do like you know this is a very crucial thing to my career or whatever right like what do you tend to rely on when you're trying to make those decisions like is it like gut feeling is it like your past experiences is it like um advice that from like someone more experienced because i know men don't tend to have like the same kind of intuition that women do so like do you rely on gut feeling more most of the times for like big decisions or what is it i think it really depends on the decision but i think it comes back to what do you really want to be right and that question comes down to saying you know it's asking small kids what they want to be it's not are they going to be a policeman they're going to be a doctor mm-hmm. going to be an engineer what do they want to be and i think the more right answer or more you know um kind of thinking as we kind of grow is who do you want to be do i want to be a, a person with a lot of integrity and 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 principles and uh how do you kind of stick to those core values and to your core values right so any big decision you you take you got to see how does that what does that make you right is that make yeah. you closer to your core values and and your integrity and your principles or does that make you this other person that you're not yeah right i think that makes that decision very simple yeah right i think that that's that's that, i think that's kind of key to ask yourself it's actually um pretty crazy how much people are willing to bend their will or like their values just to kind of achieve a core outcome i guess you could say and 
Yeah, it is. A... Yeah. It happens. Everybody has a lapse in judgment and something happens. But uh, I, I think end of the day, they know what their core values are. And that's what guides a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Because when things get tough, when things uh, get, uh, you know, don't you go your way, then you start thinking in very different directions. Yeah. And that's, that's why you see a lot of scandals happening, a lot of embezzlement happening, a lot of fraud happening, because people start thinking in very different ways when the going gets tough. Right? And if you can't guide yourself and say, no, this is what I stand for, so there's no way I can do these kind of things, mm -hmm. um, then that'll be the right kind of uh, principle to kind of go with. But if you go the other way, it's a lapse of judgment and, and stuff happens and things happen, but that makes you a very different person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think having that in mind as you kind of guide your life, I think is very important. And having the right people around you to kind of really bounce bad, ideas off and yeah, and keep you close to your vision. So because see, when the going gets tough, everything gets blurred. Yeah. Right? It's like you're being thrown into the, into the water and trying to survive and saying that, oh, what do you do to survive? <laughs> right? Is it, you know, your core principles are here. <laughs> like, but what do you need else. to survive? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so then, then that's why it's important to have people around you who can help you think that through and keep you accountable. So it's very important. So it's, when you, when they see you start doing something else and say, Deepak, is that really you? Right? Doesn't, you know, that's not really you. You, you, you don't want to be doing that. Right? And kind of people who kind of bring you back. And that's why it's so important to have those kind of mentors around you to kind of uh, keep you accountable and keep, um, you know, have as a sounding board. See, so you, you, you can always have somebody to call, have those conversations. Um, and that kind of helps you say, okay, you know, and they can ask you the question, right? Who are you? Are you this person or are you that person? And, and, and that's a, okay, yeah. And then you are able to make a decision very quickly. You know what? That, that's probably not the right decision. I, I got to stay true to the mm -hmm. values here. So, yeah, very important to have the core group of people who are going to be keeping you um, on, on your on your so, track. You know, when you're making like decisions, like, okay, let's say like financial decisions for the company and things like that, right? Like, because this is like, a, because this is the company that you founded, right? Like, obviously, you're very attached to it, right? How do you keep like your emotions in check from like, like having like a you know, very emotional driven decision that could affect the company because like you know you're very attached to it from separate from like a very kind of like a thoughtful tactical way of, of a decision 